Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays when we sit down with Smart Karma Insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. Thank you for being with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Webinar Wednesday by Smart Karma. I'm Michael Tegos, and today I'm pleased to welcome back to the webinar Mio Kato, who will help us go over the current state of Japan's automobile industry and explore what's in the cards for Japanese automakers like Toyota and Mazda. Mio is the founder of Lightstream Research. He has over 15 years of experience analyzing Japanese and Asian stocks and focusing on cyclically driven sectors such as gaming, factory automation, and autos, which of course is our topic today. And with that, Mio, please feel free to take it away. Thanks, Michael. So I think what we would like to do is um, refer to the Japanese auto sector also in the context of a lot of the talk about disruption, especially related to EVs, um, given the extremely strong performance and the very high multiples that are being attached to EVs. So our view has been for some time that the overall EV trend, while likely to progress, would probably not meet um, a lot of expectations in terms of the actual timelines. The stock market performance recently would suggest that that view is incorrect, but looking at actual statistics and facts, we actually think that um, in this case, most of the moves in these stocks are simply market fraud and just general positive sentiment um, generated around a lot of tech stocks in general. Um, Our argument has generally been that The whole disruption theme does not apply very effectively in the auto space, um, simply because the economics are very different. Very broadly, while we think that a lot of SaaS-type stocks have extremely strong um, economics and thus can justify the extremely high multiples being attached, um, not in every single case, um, especially right now, but we think Certainly, the high-quality names in that space can command such multiples and potentially justify them. But the distinction we have always made is that the software part is extremely important simply because it typically implies extremely low marginal costs. And we feel that when you combine that with the service element, which essentially is um, similar to, say, uh, a mobile network or other subscription services where you can reduce churn and thus um, stabilize your income stream, it forms an extremely powerful combination. But you do need both elements to really make it work. And in the auto sector, obviously, just simply because of the enormous fixed costs and raw materials and things like that, we don't feel that model applies. And therefore, we feel that the narrative surrounding a lot of EV players as being quite techy is completely misguided. Part of the impact of this view that the market seems to be taking is that a lot of traditional automakers are to a large extent being written off. Even ones like GM, which actually have quite strong prospects in both EVs as well as autonomous driving. Um, So this is something that we wanted to just address in terms of expressing our view about what the actual reality is. I think that The poster boy for the EV industry, obviously, is Tesla. Um, This is a company we've been tracking for a long time, and um, 
we've been quite skeptical about it also for a long time. In terms of the financials, I think that in general, our calls have been reasonably accurate. We did avoid discussing the stock for a significant amount of time between about the middle of 2019 and just very recently. Um, the reason being that we had a lot of skepticism regarding the company's accounting and financials, um, and we didn't feel that they were necessarily reflective of the economic reality. Our thesis on Tesla has always been that the addressable market was all actually a lot smaller than the company marketed it as being. And we feel that if you really look into the details um, right now, you can start to see that that's actually the case. Um, so a few things that we'd point out are in Europe, uh, Tesla's share dropped from the last half of 2019 all the way into this third quarter. So in the second half of 2019, their share was roughly 33% in the top eight markets. Um, in the last quarter, their share dropped to 13%. Um, this wasn't because of any weakness in EV sales in Europe at all. EV sales are actually up most months over 100% in the region. The reason is that a lot of local players have actually come in and started offering their own EVs. So we feel that this demonstrates that there isn't particularly anything special about Tesla as such. Um, it is slightly different from other automakers, but in terms of the target market, it does not enjoy the same advantage as something like an Apple does. And this is a company that you know Tesla has been compared to. But when you look at the actual statistics, it doesn't match up. So that's one factor that we've looked at. Um, if you look at the other major EV market, which is China, after launching their Made in China Model 3, their sales peaked at about 15,000 a month in July. But in the third quarter, sales were generally around 10 or 11,000 um, units per month. And that figure has actually been dropping, which is quite a worrying sign so soon after a launch. So the narrative surrounding Tesla is that the company is a growth company and that they give the impression that a lot of that is organic growth. Um, we don't feel that's the case. Um, a lot of that has come from expanding regions. We don't even feel that there is particularly significant growth from launching new models. Um, we've seen that after launching the Model 3, Model S and Model X sales have dropped a lot. Um, and now with the launch of the Model Y, um, we see that Model 3 sales are also being significantly cannibalized. So we feel that all of these things point to the emerging EV market as not being so different from the traditional auto market. The technologies involved are slightly different, but it's not a fundamentally different game. And we think that this is going to become increasingly clear over time. And that as this happens, we feel that the multiples for traditional automakers will probably correct upwards and that there is risk that multiples for EVs will decline significantly. Um, so to start off with, what we'd actually like to go through and raise as a point that we feel the market isn't sufficiently aware of is the sheer scale of R&D spending, especially by the Toyota group. So this is a point that we have been making over and over. But the reason we feel the Toyota Group is best in class and why we feel it has such a tremendous advantage going into a period of technological change is the sheer scale of the entire group when you look at it as the entity that it actually operates as. So 
we have here a couple of Toyota partners. On the left-hand side, we have um, other OEMs in which Toyota has stakes and which we believe could eventually be absorbed by Toyota, not necessarily within the immediate future, but on a timeline of five to 10 years, we think it's possible. Um, so you have Subaru, Suzuki, Mazda, and each of these companies operates in a slightly different segment. So they give Toyota excellent reach to different markets, as well as access to the technologies that are necessary to most effectively serve those markets. On the right-hand side, you have um, several Toyota parts companies, Denso, which does a lot of electronics and EC, Aishin, which does a lot of powertrains, JTEC, which handles electric power steering, and then Panasonic, which obviously handles the batteries. So what we really want to flag is that if you add up the total R&D spend of these companies, you actually get a figure that's almost $28 billion. Um, so as we've highlighted on the right, this is actually the level of Tesla's sales last, in the last 12 months. And that gives you an idea of exactly how enormous the spending power is that Toyota can actually bring to bear in terms of actually developing new technology. Um, if you compare other major automakers, Volkswagen is at 14.2 billion, but it's generally speculated that that figure is somewhat inflated or perhaps not necessarily especially efficiently spent. The Renault-Nissan Mitsubishi Motors Group is just under 10 billion. Then you have once Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot merge, that would again be just under 8 billion. Honda's at 7.4 billion. Its partner GM is at 6.8. Um, and then the two largest parts makers, uh, Robert Bosch and Continental, are at 6.8 billion and 5.1 billion. So, of course, there's plenty of scope for collaboration between other manufacturers. But the point we often make is the Toyota Group has been collaborating and working together for decades. And so, if they need to divvy up the various research burdens, we feel that that will be done much more effectively within the group. And we believe that this strength of Toyota is severely underappreciated by the market and that it can help it much more effectively and much more quickly deal with the changes that will occur as these technologies become necessary uh, for succeeding and surviving in the market. And we will offer some engineering examples later as well. But this is the overall overview of just the sheer scale. As a comparison, we wanted to have a look at Honda, for example. So if you combine Honda and GM, their spending is relatively high. But one issue that we'd highlight um, and that we've highlighted previously is that in relative terms, the Honda parts group the corresponding companies compared to Toyota's group are much smaller in size. And if you look at the R&D spend figures, whereas the Toyota group's companies spend, um, say, 5 billion, 2 billion, in the Honda group's case, you have figures of 200 million, 100 million, 50 million. And then even if you include Hitachi, which Honda essentially sold Kane Showa and Nissan Kogino to simply to try and create a more competitive part supplier to support it. If you apply a proportionate R&D spend um, according to its automotive division, even that only comes to 400 million. And Hitachi's total R&D is something like 2.1 billion or so. So this should outline 
exactly how much more Toyota is actually investing continuously into this R&D area. And we don't think that advantage is sufficiently appreciated, in particular because Toyota does a relatively poor job of marketing itself and does not talk about a lot of advancements that it's making. But we do feel that the market should be aware of this and people should also view the move by Honda to merge its affiliates with Hitachi as being a move of necessity because they were unable to compete and unable to develop the technologies that Honda would need in the future. So moving on, we just wanted to highlight the announcement of the new uh, Hama EV by GM. One of the major reasons for this is simply that we believe this is a good segment for GM to target. Um, our view on EVs has always been that they're actually a very attractive technology at the high end or at the very low end, but it's the mass market where we don't feel it's particularly attractive yet. Um, so if you can charge 80000 or $120,000 per vehicle as GM is planning to do with the Hummer, um, the possibility of absorbing battery costs is there. And on the other hand, if you are purely focused on city vehicles, like to an extent Nissan is with the Leaf or Renault is with the Zoe, you can use a much smaller battery because it's just city driving and you can save costs there. But if you want to replace regular vehicles, the battery cost we feel is still too exorbitant to really make a realistic case for EVs replacing traditional gasoline vehicles, but especially hybrids and plug-in hybrids. So the reason is, um, we feel batteries are going to continue to be a bottleneck. And um, a few years ago, we actually mentioned that we felt lithium would actually become the key bottleneck, whereas most people were concerned about cobalt. I think that now it's becoming relatively obvious that while cobalt is an issue, it can't be dealt with and actually can be eliminated in terms of the battery chemistry. That cannot be done with lithium. And although people were expecting lithium supply to catch up, because the EV market failed to grow as quickly as people expected in the second half of 2018 and 2019, a lot of lithium projects have actually been paused. So supply has actually not kept up. And even with batteries, um, supply is now becoming a bottleneck. Toyota has recently mentioned that it's severely constrained with batteries, even for its hybrids. And we feel that all automakers are going to start to really um, run into these issues. Most of them have uh, made efforts to tie up with Panasonic or Samsung, LG Chemical or CATL to secure supply. And we think that now that the supply demand balance is starting to tilt more in favor of battery manufacturers, it is a good time to actually take a look at these players as well. Most stocks uh, have been relatively weak but we feel that the news regarding supply bottlenecks on the battery side has just started to come out and the market has not fully priced in this situation. We'd highlight that compared to a battery EV that uses often 60 plus kilowatt hours, for hybrids, you only need a battery that's about 1.5 to 3 kilowatt hours. And for plug-in hybrids, maybe 7.5, 8 to 15. So... What we'd highlight here is that most research shows that if you can get the range of a plug-in hybrid up to about 80 kilometers, that will generally cover about 90% of a person's driving needs. So in terms of efficiency, even in terms of reducing environmental impact, plug-in hybrids are likely to be far more efficient if batteries become a constraint. And of course, hybrids use 
much less um, battery capacity. So the impact that they have on the environment is actually quite punchy compared to the size of the battery required. In particular, because the change in impact between hybrids, plug-in hybrids and EVs is actually not as large as you might imagine. All the way back in 2013, it was actually found that hybrids tended to be more eco-friendly than the LEAF. More recently, batteries have improved, but you still tend to find that hybrids are about 35% less um, harmful environmentally than typical gasoline vehicles. Um, for EVs, this can range from about 43 to 50%, depending on the power generation mix and things like that. But as you can see, it's not night and day. And we would guess that for plug-in hybrids, they would actually be very, very comparable to EVs, possibly even superior, given the 90% um, coverage that we mentioned, which a lot of modern plug-in hybrids can um, start to approach. So the environmental story we feel is over-exaggerated in favor of battery EVs in light of the constraints on resources, especially because it will take time for the power generation mix to become purely renewable or close to renewable anyway. And therefore, a very cost-efficient option using hybrids or plug-in hybrids is probably a better environmental option than trying to forcefully convert everything to battery EVs. Um, so one thing we've hi we'd highlight is that there's been a lot of excitement about Tesla finally becoming profitable. But if you actually look on the hood, over the last 15 months, um, the company generated just under $700 million in net profit. But they actually sold $1.45 billion in environmental credits. And they've been restraining CapEx and R&D spend. So we would reject the notion that EVs have seen any significant imp in improvement in profitability, especially if tax incentives are excluded. In contrast to this, Toyota says that it actually generates higher than average margins on many of its hybrids. In Europe and in Japan, this is certainly true. So what you have here is the option for Toyota as a company to be able to generate maybe two thirds of the improvement in terms of environmental impact that a battery EV can do, but without taking losses and in fact, actually increasing margins. And we feel that this part of the story is generally not appreciated by the market simply because it's not discussed enough by Toyota in particular. On the autonomous driving side, this is another area where it's generally said that traditional automakers are significantly behind. We disagree with this. There's actually an open source product called OpenPilot, which mimics a lot of Tesla's full self-driving features. It costs $1,000. It just uses a modified smartphone that plugs into your vehicle. Most reviews we've seen show it having similar functionality to Tesla's full, full self-driving, which costs $8,000 and is supposed to be hiked to $10,000 imminently. It's compatible with a wide range of vehicles. The company is actually just five years old and it's, there are only 12 employees. The technology it uses is just a single smartphone camera and a linkage to the vehicle's onboard radar. Now, what we highlight based on this is simply that if it's possible for a team of 12 to do this within five years, we would reject the notion that any traditional automaker is really going to struggle to match the same quality as Tesla's um, ADAS features. We feel this is simply a difference in marketing as well as a willingness to take risk rather than any sort of technological capability. 
this again is something that we feel the market underappreciates and which drives a differential in the multiples of traditional automakers versus EV makers that we feel is unwarranted. The other major case, of course, for automakers in general is simply that global recoveries for auto sales are actually starting to trend quite strongly. Um, so as you can see from this chart, all regions were down year on year, but very recently, every single region has turned to actually being positive year on year. So we feel part of this is probably pent up demand, but clearly if the underlying demand for autos was not strong, we would not be seeing this picture. So we feel that a lot of concerns about cyclical downturns that were prevailing prior to the coronavirus crisis may have actually been overblown. And one thing we'd highlight on this chart is actually that Japan had a tax hike in October of last year. And you can see that there was um, pre-buying before that. And that's why we feel Japan may still be down year on year. But once you move into October and November, you will probably see China, the US, Japan, and Europe all showing positive Y on Y volume numbers. And that's why we think now is actually a good time to be looking at um, automakers in general. But we feel that Toyota and Mazda in particular are extremely interesting. Um, so to highlight Toyota, the valuation case we feel is extremely simple. As the best in place class um, player in this industry, uh, we don't feel it should be trading below book. Um, we feel that the company actually avoiding a loss in the first quarter was actually quite a remarkable achievement and is an indication of just how much they've strengthened their profitability. Given that the industry is recovering, we feel that the most obvious pick for a lot of investors will be Toyota. And therefore, in the short term, Toyota would be our number one pick. Um, we'd also highlight that the company, prior to the coronavirus crisis, had been quite aggressive with buybacks. And its governance from that perspective has improved quite significantly. But as we show with the chart on the right, even though EPS has been increasing and actually hit new all-time highs recently, this was not reflected in the share price, which is still below the 2015 highs. Um, so we do feel that there is upside potential here and that there are positives which the market probably has ignored simply because a lot of the narrative has been against what Toyota has traditionally been good at. But we do feel that at this point, Toyota is worth another look. The other idea we would highlight is Mazda. So this is a much longer term idea. And we feel there's also significantly more upside if things do go right. So Mazda is right now trading at 30% of book. As you can see, it's traded up towards three times book at various points in its existence. We don't necessarily think it's going to go up 10x, but we would actually highlight that there are similarities here with Subaru in terms of transforming from a somewhat dumpy automatic manufacturer into more of a premium brand. And Mazda has been investing in this, been investing in um, reducing incentives, uh, improving the quality of its retail and sales outlets, and also improving its after sales. So it's been doing this um, in conjunction with Toyota to an extent. And we've always felt that Mazda's product itself was actually quite competitive with Toyota and Honda and other leading brands, but its after sales often let it down. So what we want to highlight here is simply that if you look at the company's revenues until the recent coronavirus, they had actually been trending quite strongly, but you can see that the share price has 
collapsed over the last five years. And this is because they've been making a lot of upfront investments and that has severely pressured margins. Now, it may still be a little bit early, but we do feel that the fruits of the, this investment are starting to come through. And therefore, if you're looking three to five years out, we feel that there are few order stocks which are more interesting than Mazda in particular because there's also the possibility of Toyota at some point purchasing the company because of its rotary engine technology, which we've discussed in another insight, but which is quite interesting as an option for plug-in hybrid as a range extender because it's quite a small compact engine and it offers high efficiency. So yeah, two top picks in the sector are Toyota for the short term, and for longer-term investors, we really like Mazda. And we'll wrap up there. Thank you very much, Mio. This is uh, very enlightening. I would like to touch on the broader EV theme that uh, is very prevalent in the market and your presentation. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that there's a perception there that Japanese OEMs have been slower to respond to the trend? And uh, what do you think is their ability to sort of compete in this space long-term? Yeah, so we think that part of the perception is real in that they have been slow to pivot. Part of the perception is wrong in the sense that it's not a lack of technological capability, just simply because there's a lot of overlap between hybrid technology and EV technology. If they wanted to do it, it's not really that much of a problem. It's more just a matter of um, you can get some efficiencies by designing a vehicle as an EV from the bottom up rather than converting a traditional hybrid or gasoline vehicle into something which shoves in a motor and a battery. So that part of the perception we feel is incorrect, but we do feel it's an accurate criticism that they have been slow to actually deploy these vehicles. We would say, though, that's mostly about the companies not being convinced about their profitability rather than any other sort of hesitation. And we think that they are gradually responding to this um, to a certain extent, a little bit reluctantly, simply because they recognize it will harm their profits. But as a move to ensure that they keep pace, um, we have started to see a lot more releases of late, especially in China. So we do feel they're now starting to catch up and you will start to see more headlines of Japanese auto manufacturers launching their own EVs. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's key regional features that investors should be aware of in terms of EV hybrid vehicle acceptance and competition levels among OEMs? We've seen, you already spoke about Tesla and GM. There's a lot of Chinese OEMs. So what's your view on that? Yeah, so we think this is quite an interesting area because there are quite a few differences. So Europe, we feel is most government incentives seem to be towards EVs and the local OEMs are also starting to show their strength in the area. They moved quite quickly to um, really back EVs and we're not convinced that's going to be the right strategy in terms of profitability. And they may have moved a little bit too early in our opinion, but nevertheless, if you want to build EVs, that's one of the most um, attractive markets. Toyota is actually having huge success with hybrids in Europe, and the proportion of hybrids among its fleet is now something like 50% of sales. So while governments are pushing EVs, um, hybrids and plug-in hybrids are also doing extremely well in Europe. So 
in Europe, we feel that success is pretty broad-based in terms of new energy vehicles. In China, battery EVs get most of the press, but in terms of the government stance, we've been highlighting that this has actually shifted from purely backing EVs to a much more broad approach, supporting hybrids as well as fuel cell vehicles. So the Chinese government has been encouraging Toyota to partner with Chinese companies to develop fuel cell buses and Toyota opening up its hybrid patent portfolio and also offering to sort of teach other manufacturers how to build hybrids has actually been mostly we feel at the behest of the Chinese government in terms of Toyota helping China develop its hybrid industry. And in exchange, hybrids would get more favorable treatment, which is what's actually happened. So we've been flagging this probably for the last 18 months or so, and we've finally started to see concrete um, regulations um, coming in place in terms of hybrids now being counted in the quota for new energy vehicles, albeit at a slightly lower ratio than a pure battery EV. So we feel that prospects for hybrids are actually quite strong in Europe and China, as well as Japan. The US is where things are interesting. Toyota is really starting to try and push hybrids there, which traditionally have not done particularly well. But the new Prius, uh, sorry, the RAV4 Prime has attracted a lot of attention. And this actually is the vehicle which seems to be seeing the biggest battery constraints. U.S. consumers tend not to pay the premiums for hybrids that Europeans and Japanese are willing to. If Toyota can change that mindset, and here we've actually flagged that we believe Ford introducing a hybrid F-150 model could actually have a significant impact on the market as well, because hybrids and plug-in hybrids can offer some of the torque and power advantages of a traditional battery EV. Not quite as much, but it certainly does help, and therefore they can be quite attractive for trucks. And you do have, obviously, GM's Hummer, but that's in a slightly different price bracket. So if you're looking for something more in the sort of forty dollars to $60,000 range, something like a hybrid full-size pickup may actually be quite attractive. And we believe Ford and Toyota will both start offering these options. So if that becomes a thing in the U.S., then we feel conditions will be extremely favorable for Toyota. But we do feel that the U.S. is still a little bit EV-focused, probably because there is Tesla and GM is also starting to really see some nice momentum in the space. We really like the Hummer launch and the commercial was also pretty brilliant, in our opinion. So, hmm. yeah, we, we think there's probably going to be some excitement in the U.S. about EVs simply because two of their banner companies uh doing some nice things there mm-hmm. definitely seems like one to watch speaking of uh, toyota we have seen increased interest in japan over uh gover- governance improvements and you have mentioned how toyota has several large stakes in part suppliers business affiliates uh, how do you see this situation considering the evolving circumstances in japan yeah so it, it's It's an interesting issue. Um, Toyota was actually recently voted number one in um, a Nikkei ESG survey. So I think investors do complain that Toyota's capital ties are inefficient because it maintains so many different stakes and so many affiliates. Our view is a bit more balanced. We don't feel those capital stakes 
are sort of necessary, but they have traditionally been part of Toyota's commitment to its partners and act as a way to stabilize relationships. Arguably, you can do that just with culture and sort of, you know, responsible way of doing business rather than just owning shares of your suppliers. So it would be nice to see the company change this approach over time. But we do feel that it would be difficult to turn the ship around immediately. And therefore, while we do recognize that it's a long-term concern, we don't feel it should be the number one concern uh, in terms of Toyota's governance. And Mm. the fact that it has been much more aggressive with share buybacks and slowly raising the dividend, we feel should be counted more highly, especially because the company has shown significant steps forward in terms of basically increasing its flexibility and looking to open up its culture so that it's still extremely reliable and safe, but much more nimble on its feet. Um, And we think Akio Toyota deserves a huge amount of credit for managing to do that with a company that's as um, conservative as Toyota. Do you think there would be some kind of trigger that uh, would make Toyota increase its stake in, in Mazda? And would you have a timeline for that? So the timeline is a bit difficult. Um, as we mentioned, it, it's probably not going to be very quick, five years, 10 years, mm-hmm. maybe even 15 years. But the one thing that we've been looking at is that we do feel that Mazda's engine technology is quite interesting, especially if, as we believe, the transition to battery EVs or fuel cell EVs will happen through increasing hybrid and plug-in hybrid penetration first. So the reason for this is the uh, rotary engine that we mentioned before. So these engines actually take up about one third of the space of a typical auto cycle engine. They also are comprised of a smaller number of parts So manufacturing them, if you do it at scale, can probably be done much more cheaply. And at the same time, you save space within the automobile, which makes it easier to actually run hybrid and plug-in hybrid systems because you essentially need the motor as well as the engine. And so space is at a bit of a premium when you're talking about hybrids and plug-in hybrids. But that engine does um, solve that issue. And Mazda actually is the only automaker which didn't give up on this technology basically in the 70s oil crisis. So that does give them an advantage uh, because the disadvantage of this engine has traditionally been that it's inefficient at different RPMs, but if you can run it at a steady level, which is what they plan to do by using the engine purely to generate power rather than to actually drive the wheels. So it would just run at its most efficient cycle and it would just be used to charge the battery. And in that way, it would be a range extender for an EV um, rather than being a more traditional plug-in hybrid. And the other actual problem with the engine has traditionally been that sometimes not all of the fuel would combust, but Mazda has actually been working on a particular technology for gasoline engines, which essentially means that the fuel-air mixture spontaneously combusts due to pressure. So given the nature of the engine, it's possible that they can use this technology in the rotary engine as well. And if that's the case, then they can solve its other major issue. So if they can do both things, it actually becomes extremely attractive as a plug-in hybrid technology. 
Um, so if that starts to go mainstream, we think that there's no reason for Toyota to not take a larger stake in Mazda. They probably mm -hmm. won't buy them out, but we wouldn't be surprised to see them raise their stake um, in the company within the next two to three years. I see. So we're just about uh, out of time, uh, but maybe really quickly, you could um, give us your opinion on the biggest misconception uh, regarding the auto industry and its technology transition. Yeah, so I think um, I did touch on the two major aspects uh, which are on the autonomous side as well as the battery and EVs. So on the autonomous side, I think that we feel that people look at the transition from ADAS to actual level five AD as being a lot smoother than it's likely to be. Mm -hmm. um, we feel that the hurdles to get to high quality ADAS as in driver assist where you actually need to be paying attention, they're not that high and all automakers should be able to clear them relatively easily. When you actually look at fully autonomous driving, we think it's going to be much, much more difficult. Um, so Waymo actually announced that um, they'd be expanding their driverless taxi service in Phoenix. But one thing we'd, we'd point out is that Phoenix's um, road grid is essentially that, a grid. And if you look at weather patterns there, it's generally sunny and daylight hours are also quite long. Um, so a lot of problems with uh, autonomous driving happen when it's raining or when it's dark and cameras have issues and things like that. So mm -hmm. we still feel that we're quite far away. And we'd also point out very simply that because of human nature, it's just not a good idea to have something that's partway between high quality ADAS and a truly functional autonomous driving mode. Because if you have a system where people don't need to pay attention 95% of the time, but 5% of the time they do, they're just never going to pay attention and you're going to start getting a lot of different accidents. So we think that transition is a lot further out than people seem to think. Tesla always talks about delivering this within the next, it's always one or two years out um, or next year, but we actually think probably the late 2030s or possibly even 2040s is a more realistic target for full self-driving, which isn't about restricted areas or just say bus routes or truck routes or something much more controlled. Um, the second area I think is, as we mentioned on the EV side, we still think that there will need to be a breakthrough in battery technology, probably for solid state batteries. Um, this again is an, is an area where Toyota actually has a lead um, working with Panasonic and they were planning to um, have an example out for the Tokyo Olympics, but they feel they might be able to start limited mass production by about the middle of this decade. Um, so this solves a lot of battery problems in terms of um, energy density, as well as weight and potential fires and things like that. Um, we feel that one misconception investors seem to have had about lithium ion batteries was that they would see cost reductions in a similar way to what you see with semiconductors and Moore's law. And that really hasn't been the case. What we feel happened is that after sort of the early 2010s, when automotive batteries really started to enter mass production, um, they started at a very high cost level because they were simply much larger than say lithium ion batteries for laptops and things like that. 
and we saw the cost per kilowatt hour very rapidly catch up to consumer electronics levels. But once they had fully caught up, we've seen very limited progress. And about half of the cost of lithium-ion batteries actually from materials. Um, so if you start to see supply side issues, it's going to be very difficult to bring costs down. So we think that's something that investors should be much more aware about is that there will probably be incremental gains on the cost side, but we feel that the low hanging fruit has basically been plucked. So it's not right to continue projecting the cost decreases of you know, the first half of the last decade into the future, because we, we don't think that's going to happen again. Right. Well, there's plenty here to think about. So thank you very much for that, Mio. And thank you everyone for being with us today. Please feel free to uh, go on the Smart Karma platform and read more of Mio's insights on these topics uh, as he goes quite into detail uh, about everything that we've talked about today. Mio is also available for bespoke research requests or premium services. So please contact your Smart Karma account manager in this regard. And if you have any other questions, please email us at research at smartkarma.com. Thank you very much once again, Mio. Thanks, Michael. That's it for this week. If you liked this episode, please share it with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you at the next one.